Amen. Thank you, Josh, for helping us to worship today. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. We're spending Christmas in Revelation, and we're up to Revelation chapter 5. If you haven't been with us, or if you're like me and you just forget, let me give you a little bit of review. Here's what we've learned so far in the first four chapters of Revelation. We have learned this. The vision that the Apostle John sees in heaven, that vision that he writes about, that we read about here in the book of Revelation, that vision John sees in heaven changes the way we see things on earth. That's what we've been learning. If you were with us last week in Revelation 4, let me give you a little bit of a review because Revelation 4 and 5 go together. They have the same setting. They take place in the same spot. And last week in Revelation chapter 4, we said that from our perspective, things may seem out of control. It seems like evil is winning, that chaos prevails, that the forces of evil will win the day. But we saw in Revelation chapter 4 that there is a throne in heaven, and that there is one seated upon the throne. And that the one on the throne, as we sang today, is holy, holy, holy. So he is good. We saw that the one seated on the throne is almighty, that he has all might. That means he has all power. So he's good. He has all might. And we saw that he is eternal. As we sang, he is and was and is to come, that he always will be. And so if he's good and he has all power, and he's not going anywhere because he's eternal, then we can have hope that good will triumph over evil. So that's what we learned last week in Revelation chapter 4. We're still in the throne room as we get to Revelation chapter 5, but we go from this big panoramic view, and then John focuses our view on one particular thing that he wants us to see here in the throne room. So be listening for that one particular thing as I read Revelation chapter 5. I'll pray for us and then we'll dig in. What is it that John focuses in on that he wants us to see? Revelation chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold... The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when they had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Oh God, thank you for the great privilege we have of seeing a glimpse of your throne room in heaven. And Father, I pray that as we see these things that we don't fully understand, I pray that you would show us enough, that we would understand enough that the way that we see things here on earth would be forever changed. Please come and do that now, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher for it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I wonder, have you ever watched a movie where they give you this big panoramic view and then they focus down on one thing that they want you to see? Maybe you don't pay a lot of attention to cinematography, but I bet you've seen it before. If you're a fan of The Sound of Music, remember that musical, the movie version opens with this panoramic view of the Alps. And then, of course, it focuses in on one nun on a hillside singing, The hills are alive. And there's Maria twirling, singing the sound of music. Maybe you've seen it if you've watched The Lord of the Rings. They use that a lot. They'll show the party that is traveling, and they'll show the mountains or the forest or whatever big panoramic scene, a battle scene. And then they'll focus down on one thing, maybe one person, maybe one weapon, maybe a, a ring or something that they want you to see that's going to become important in the story. That's what happens here. If you were with us last week in Revelation chapter 4, we talked about what all is around the throne, the one who is on the throne, the rainbow above the throne, the thunder and lightning coming from the throne, the sea of glass there before the throne, all these creatures that are here. You're wondering, what are those? Go back and listen to the sermon from last week. We talked about the 24 elders and the four living creatures that are mentioned here. But when we get to Revelation 5, after this big panoramic view of the throne room of God, John focuses us down. Do you see what he says in verse 1? Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written on the back and on the front and sealed with seven seals. What's this scroll? Well, we've learned in the book of Revelation that seven is the number of completeness. So if it has seven seals, it is completely sealed. And the fact that it's written on the front and the back shows that it's complete, that it is thorough. And we're not told here exactly what it is. But as you continue to read in the book of Revelation, and these, these seals are open and the scroll is open, we see that what is on the scroll, what the scroll contains, is God's plan for making all things new. It contains God's plan for taking everything that is wrong in the universe and making it right. You see, last Christmas, we spent Christmas in Genesis. 
And we saw there that God created all things good. And that things are broken and messed up in our world, not because God is not a good God, not because He doesn't have all might, not because He's gone away someplace, but that things are broken and messed up because of our poor choices, because we have not lived life the way God designed it to be lived. And as a result, when we rejected God's rule over us, shame came into the world. Fear and hiding came into the world. Enmity or hate came into the world. Pain came into the world. Blame came into the world. Death entered into the world. And this tendency that the world has for everything to come apart and to come undone, and to not work the way it's supposed to, all that came into the world as a result of our rejecting God's good rule over us. And here in Revelation 5, we see this scroll, we see God's plan for making all things new, for making right everything that's wrong. This is God's will that will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that Revelation 21 says will result in his making all things new. He will wipe every tear from our eye. All that that came into the world through our rebellion will be done away with. Death will be no more. No more crying or mourning or pain that God will wipe every tear from our eyes. This scroll is his plan for doing so. Don't you long for what's written on the scroll. We've all experienced shame and fear and blame and hatred and pain and death and tears. Don't you long for what's on the scroll. Don't you long for God's plan for making all things new, for God to right all that is wrong. But there's a problem. In verse 2, this strong angel says, But who is worthy to come and to take the scroll from God's hand? He's asking the question, who is pure enough to come before a God who is holy, holy, holy? He's asking who is smart enough to understand what is written on the scroll? He's asking who's strong enough to execute the plan, to actually carry it out, even if they're able to open it and read it. Who's strong enough to make sure that this plan is put into effect? We long for one who is pure enough and smart enough and strong enough, don't we? Look at our culture. We look for answers in political and governmental solutions. We look to technology to make all things right. We invest so much in education thinking that's going to right all wrongs. And yet we cannot find one who is worthy to open the scroll. There's not one who is pure enough, who is smart enough, who is strong enough. And in verse 3 we're told there is no one who fits that description. And in verse 4 John begins to weep the appropriate response, isn't it? To weep. In our culture, do you hear people who weep? We've worked so hard putting our hope in political leaders, in superheroes in comic books, or that we make movies about. We long for one to come and make all things right. We've invested in technology and education. We've looked at so many things, and when those things let us down... We weep. 
our culture weeps. A lot of the cynicism that we see in our culture is the result of people who put their hope in something that was not worthy, that has let them down. And we weep. We see this hopelessness, this weeping in the music and movies of our culture, in the art, in the things that we produce. We see this hopelessness. But I have good news for you this morning. Verse 5 says that there is one who is worthy. And this elder tells John, behold, the Lion of Judah. He has conquered so he can open the scroll. He's pure enough. He is strong enough. He is wise enough. But then what John sees next changes everything. What John sees next changes the way we should see things on the earth. Because you see, the elder said, the Lion of Judah has conquered. And John looks, expecting to see this strong, powerful lion. And he sees a lamb. And not just any lamb. The, the word that is used here, there are two words for, for lamb, at least two words for lamb in the Greek, and this word for an adult sheep. That's not the one that's used here. This is one that's used for like a baby lamb, a tiny lamb. And this lamb is not just a baby lamb. This lamb's been slaughtered. He's been slain. So John looks, expecting to see this roaring lion who has conquered him. He sees a lamb that has been slain. Let this paradox, let this dichotomy of images between the lion, the conquering lion, and the lamb, let this shape your view of reality. Let it shape your view. That's the Christmas message, right? That the God of glory, who was worshipped and adored and was powerful, came to earth as a tiny baby. And John sees that in this vision in Revelation 5. The conquering lion is a lamb. Now make no mistake about it. The lamb, we're told here, has seven horns. That's weird. I've never seen a lamb that looks like that. Listen, horn is a symbol for strength. And if he has seven of them, it means he's completely strong. That he has all might, just like the one who sits on the throne. He has seven eyes, which means he knows all things. And we're specifically told that he's completely wise because he is completely full of the Holy Spirit. That's how he knows all things, the Spirit that has been out over all the earth. So how does this dichotomy, how does this paradox, how does this difference in what we expect to see and what we actually see, how does that give us hope for our hopelessness? How does that change the way that we see things here on earth? I'm glad you asked that question. Those are actually the three points of the sermon today. This first part, that was just fun. That was just studying the Bible, right? Now we got a sermon, right? Now we got something that will preach. How does this view, how does this dichotomy, how does it give us hope for our hopelessness? Three things. Number one, for those who are broken and hurting. For those who feel so alone in our suffering, listen to me, there is hope. And here's the reason why. 
There's hope because we're not alone in our suffering. The one who sits on the throne has wounds. He has suffered. He has tasted all the things that we have tasted. And that means that as lonely as we may feel, we are never alone in our suffering. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 3 is instructive here. We read there that he was despised and rejected. Have you ever felt rejected? Jesus has been rejected before. He knows what that feels like. Isaiah 53 says that he, was a, he is a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, acquainted with grief. Jesus has walked and experienced and tasted the things that you experience. And so the one on the throne is not unsympathetic to what you face, to what you're going through. And that gives us hope. In the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 4 also helps us to understand because we're told there down around verse 15 that, that we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we have been tempted, yet was without sin. That's his purity. He's holy, holy, holy. And then the writer of Hebrews tells us, therefore, because that's true, that we can come before this throne room in heaven, we can come before the throne, and we can find grace, we can find mercy that will help us in our time of need what it means that there is a slain lamb on the throne in heaven it means we're not alone in our suffering it means there is one who knows and we can hold on knowing that we're not alone and we can continue to move forward because we have great hope knowing that the one on the throne has a plan to make all things new this suffering is not forever it is temporary and a day is coming that he will say the word and make all things new. So listen, we can endure suffering. That's the first thing this image shows us. Second thing, for those of us who are striving, oh, we're working so hard to be good enough for God. I talked to somebody this week who just said, I'm just trying to have the, the good things I do outweigh the bad things which, of course, is not the standard. This guy is holy, 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 right? Doesn't really grade on a curve. But we feel that way sometimes, don't we? That we're working so hard to be acceptable so that we can come before a holy God. And some of us have seen that the standard is so high, we've just stopped trying. Because we realize no matter how good we are, we're never going to be good enough. Maybe because of something bad we've done in the past or, or because we just feel dirty when we come before a holy God. For those of us who are in that situation, listen to us. This, there, there is hope. Because this image shows us that we don't have to be good enough to make up for our sin. Well, how does this image show us that? Well, it shows us in this way. Why did the lion become a lamb? Why was the lamb slaughtered? Do you see why? Verse 9 tells us that it was for us. Look at verse 9. What does it say? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The lamb was slaughtered. For us, 
His blood ransomed people. His blood, the giving of his life, was the payment for sin so that we might be free. He paid the price for our failures by his sacrifice. He died in our place as our substitute. He lived the perfect life we should have lived and died the death that we should have died so that we can come before a holy God. Now, his resurrection from the dead is important. Here's this lamb who's been slain, but he's raised from the dead. His resurrection is important because it shows that he completely and fully paid the price for our sin. But it's his death and his shedding of blood that shows that it's not about our being good enough because our sins have been paid for. Again, Isaiah 53 is instructive here. We read there that he was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquity, that the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds were healed. And then God makes that statement in verse 6. that should bring us great comfort. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Oh, let's just talk about that for a minute. We're so surprised by our sin. I can't believe I did that. God's not surprised. He says in verse 6, look, you're going to go astray. He's not shocked by that. I can't believe I did that. God's not surprised by your sin. Second thought. If Jesus has paid the price for all my sin, my past sin, my present sin, my future sin, any sin that I will commit, if he has paid the price for my sin, then that means there's nothing I can do to make God love me any more than he loves me right now. Because I'm credited with the perfect righteousness of Christ Jesus himself. And that also means, praise God, that there's nothing we can do to make God love us any less than what he does right now. And that's because his love for us is not based on what we do. It's based on what Jesus has done. That is hard for us to even believe. If you're, saying, if you're saying, I'm not sure that that's right, then you're probably beginning to hear the gospel, the good news, the, the shocking statement that it makes. Oh, and when we hear this, when we understand what this image means, we can stop striving, we can stop working so hard to be good for God. Listen, that doesn't mean that we don't take sin seriously. When we think we have to be good enough in order to become before a holy God, a lot of times we won't even admit our sin. Knowing that Jesus has paid for our sins enables some of us to be honest about our sin for the first time. We don't want to admit how bad it is. We don't want to go there. We don't want to see how the depth or the darkness of it because it's too much. But to know that Jesus has already paid the price for our sin enables us for the first time to be honest about the, the depth of our sin so that we can confess that and receive the grace and mercy that is made available by the Lamb who was slain. Listen, for those of you who have given up because you can't be good enough, don't give up. This image of the lamb says come there's nothing that you can do that is so bad that the blood of christ will not pay for that sin you know i wondered as i looked at this image this week why does the lamb still look slaughtered 
You know, if he's in heaven and we get glorified bodies, if he's the firstborn over all creation, why isn't he made whole now? Why doesn't the lamb look whole? I mean, I get the dichotomy, but why does he have to look like he's been slain? Why does our God still have wounds? Oh, because the image reminds us that our sins are forgiven, that Jesus has paid the price in full, that he has ransomed a people for God. Because this one took the slaughter that our sins deserve so that we can come and find grace. Oh, don't run from him. Come to him. Acknowledging sin. Availing yourself of the finished work of Christ on the cross. There's a third thing that helps us in our hopelessness. As we look at this image around the throne and we hear the songs, we realize that there is hope for this world. There is hope for a world made new where everything that's wrong is going to be made right. Because there's one who can open the seals. God has a plan. We'll see in this book how God will judge evil, that he will right all wrongs. And one day he will say the word and he'll make all things new. And he will come to live with us in a new heaven and a new earth as the heavenly Jerusalem comes down to this earth. And his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. That day is coming. God has a plan to make it happen. That's what's written on the scroll. But did you know we have a very specific part in that plan? that we must not lose sight of. And I see that in verses 9 and 10. Let me show you in the text. Because they sing this new song and they say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's odd language. Not just people. Not just mankind. But for every tribe and tongue and people and language and nation, all the different kinds of people on the earth. Why, why would they sing that as their song? Well, if you're familiar with the scripture, this is a theme in the scripture. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, when God is beginning this process of making all things new, he calls Abraham to himself and he establishes a, a group of people that are his. But even all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, the plan was always to bless the nations because in Genesis 12 and verse 3, God says to Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all nations on the earth. Revelation 5 is a, is a vision of the fulfillment of that plan. Isaiah 49, this summer as we spent the summer in Isaiah, we saw in Isaiah 49 where God's talking about his people and his, the servant of the Lord he will, who will come. And he said, just giving you this one group of people, the Israelites, that's, that's not enough. But I'm going to make you a light to the nations, people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people group. He says in Isaiah 49, down around verse 6, that I'll make you a light to the nations so that my salvation will go to the ends of the earth. Then Jesus comes. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way of salvation. Then he is slain and raises from the dead, as we've talked about. And then before he ascends into heaven, he says to his followers in Matthew 28, Look, all authority in heaven on earth is being me. I've got all might, right? 
Therefore, go make disciples, make followers of Jesus of all nations, all tribes and languages and people groups. From every part of the earth, there should be followers of me, followers of Jesus. And he tells us how to do that. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Acts chapter 1 tells about Jesus right before he ascends. And he's, he's talking this way to his disciples. And they ask him the question, Okay, so at this time, Acts 1, down around verse 6, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom? Is that what you're saying, Jesus? So they're tracking, this is what the, the, the fulfilled kingdom looks like, and Jesus says, look, it's not for you to know the time that I'm going to fulfill the kingdom. But as for you, here's our job, you are to be my witnesses. You're supposed to tell what you saw and heard. You're to be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth, right? People from every tribe and language. And, t- and, t- and so when we get to verse 9 and we see this vision around the throne, we'll see it again. John will describe these people again in Revelation 7 and again in Revelation 11 and again in Revelation 14, that all these people from every tribe and language and nation have come. What this is is a vision of the completed Great Commission. That's what this is. That God's people have been obedient to be His witnesses to make disciples of all nations. And we see that here as our job is completed in heaven. Now listen to me, of course, that's the Great Commission. Thank you for that great revelation. Yes, we all came here. If you've been in church a long time, you've probably heard the Great Commission. No, that's our job. But I'm concerned, and here's the reason why. Listen to me. You see, we want to see the world made new now. And we long for that to happen. And because God will make all things new one day, we're busy making things new now. So we are active in feeding the hungry. There are people in this congregation that are, that are active in that. Even now, we work to end abortion, reduce the number of abortions here in our community. There are people in our congregation who are active in that. As well they should be. There are people who are members of our church who have marched in our community to take down statues specifically to deal with the racism and the division and the hatred that they represent. That is a good thing. There are folks who are in our number who are dedicated to working with homeless people in our community that, that are providing homes and foster care for kids that are serving underserved portions of our community. And all these things are important. Christians are to care about those things. And I'm glad that we have folks working in those areas. Do not go out of here and say that I downplayed that or said that that wasn't important because that is not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. That there is a very specific role given to the church. And even though we long to see things made new, the primary job of the church is to make disciples. And listen, let me tell you, those are not adverse with each other, those ideas. Because as we baptize people, as we teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded, then there will be less abortions area. Racism and hatred will decrease in this area. Statues will come down. There will be more people who care about homelessness or about hunger or about children who need homes. So as a church, we want to support believers involved in all those things. But listen, as a church, 
we must not get distracted from our primary job, which is to make disciples. And we do that by baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything Christ commanded. And I'm concerned. Because as I look at our hearts, I see what we write online, I hear what we talk about. Boy, we are on fire to win some political battles. We're on fire about some real issues that we ought to care about in this community. But I do not hear us on fire about making disciples. I don't see us caring as much about that as we do these other things. And listen to me. Revelation chapter 5 says it is not our job to win every battle. We serve a lamb that's been slain. As much as we want to be a conquering, roaring lion, that is not our calling at this point in the story. I believe it was the missionary Mary Webster who said it best to help me understand. She says, we don't work for the victory. We work from the victory. Do you understand what she's saying? Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, the lion has conquered. He's already won. We're already on the winning team. Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. Listen, we don't engage in a battle with evil in order to win. Jesus already won. Nothing can take Jesus off the throne. Nothing can stop God's plan from making all things new. It will happen. And so we need to remember it's not our job to win by whatever means necessary. You see, when other things become more important to us than making disciples, we get off track and we end up in some bad places. In a good desire to fight abortion, we embrace some not-so-good means to get there. In our zeal to end racism and hatred and division, we embrace some not-so-good means to get there. And it can hurt our ability to make disciples in this culture. Listen, let me just assure you, because that's the assurance that this passage gives. Let me assure you that whatever happens serves God's purposes. It serves his ends. Even the forces opposed to him serve his purposes, which is why we never lose, watch this, even when we don't get our own way. Even when things don't happen the way I think they should or the way I think they ought, we never lose. We need to learn to say, look, maybe I'll see victory in this battle and maybe I won't. But I don't work for the victory, I work from it. We need to be people say, I have seen the vision of a completed great commission and I know God will make all things new. And it seems to me this is how this particular battle should go. <laughs> but God works in, a, in some surprising ways. As much as I want a roaring lion to come make things right, I serve a slaughtered lamb. His ways are not my ways. His timing is seldom my timing. So I'm just going to keep being faithful to serve him and to testify to him and to tell people about him and to, and to teach people what he taught us. And I'm going to let him fix things in his time. Listen, let me tell you why this is important. Why I think this makes a difference in our lives. I look at our folks, people who are believers, who, who the first two points of this, who say, yes, Jesus is with us in our suffering. Yes, I have conviction that I have been saved by the cross. I see these people who have those things and would say yes to points one and two, and we are so anxious because an election doesn't go the way we think it ought to go. I, I see people who are so upset that the forces in the world are not 
are not going the way we think they ought to go. We're, we're nervous, we're anxious, we're fearful. And a lot of times when we get fearful, we get really mean and ugly. And like Abraham and Sarah try to force our own plan because God's not working fast enough. Listen, when we begin to see the world through these Revelation lenses, Revelation 4 and 5 lenses, there is so much less striving. Listen to me. There's a rest here. There is so much less having to win. There's so much less having to be right. There is so much less having to have everyone else know that I'm right. There's so much less trying to fake it like I know what is right. There's so much less manipulating you to get you to do what I think is right. Listen, it's not our job to make all things right. It's our job to be faithful to the one who makes all things right, to sing his praises and to invite others into a relationship with him. Let's not lose focus on that primary calling. Our calling in life is to live like the lamb and not like the lion. Oh, we want to be the lion. But the lion wins not by being a roaring lion, but by laying down his life for his enemies. Whew, it's a hard word for us, isn't it? But Revelation 5 tells us it's the way of the lamb that wins. Think about it. He had all might. He came as a baby. And was mistreated and misunderstood and was killed. And then raises from the dead. You see, we have to be strong to lay down our lives for others who don't deserve it. Evil is overcome in only one way. We overcome by enduring suffering, not by inflicting suffering. What John sees in heaven changes the way we see things on earth. What seemed foolish is actually wise. What seemed weak to us is actually strong. What we think is wise, we see is actually foolish. May God give us eyes to see and strength to die to ourselves and rest in his victory. Let's pray and ask him to help us do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this vision of the throne. Thank you that you're with us in suffering. Thank you that you have paid the price for our sin. Lord, help us to die to ourselves. Help us to say, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Father, it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.